Well, good morning. So it's a privilege to be with you this morning and to look at Mark chapter 4. If you would make your way to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. I think you're in for a treat this morning. Um, this is a, a signature miracle of Christ. Uh, a lot of art has been built around this particular miracle. One piece of art which dates back to 1632, is a Rembrandt. The Dutch uh, reformer and painter, Rembrandt, painted a piece of art based on this particular text. He entitled it, um, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's a famous piece of art. It's still in existence today and was much appreciated until 1990 when it was stolen. Uh, from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990. It's been missing ever since. So somebody has this piece of art out there, but it's a classic. If you know anything about a Rembrandt, and you've probably heard that name for, from cultural studies in high school or, or maybe in college. If you know anything about Rembrandt, one of his signatures was to always paint himself into the piece of art. And so if you look at the art, and you can go online this afternoon and type in Rembrandt, uh, type in Mark's Gospel or type in the storm on the Sea of Galilee and you'll see on that boat there were a number of his disciples as they crossed over on the Sea of Galilee and you'll see his face painted into uh, one of the cast on the boat. So that was a signature of what he did with a lot of his religious art. He painted himself as a reminder uh, of the principles that he was painting when it came to, to this account. So this is a major account. It's also different. You know what the synoptics are. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? They're the synoptic gospels. And the same stories are repeated in each of the gospels. Typically, as you know, Mark is very fast-paced, and so he's short. But not in this case. He's the most vivid. If you were to go to uh, Matthew 8 or Luke 8, where you find this same account, it's, it's shorter. It's abbreviated. There's far more vivid detail. I believe that's because, as you know, Mark is the amanuensis for Peter. Peter was on the boat. Peter had experienced this incident so deeply uh, that he passed on to Mark the vividness of this one particular evening. So this is, a, this is a, the first time in Mark's gospel we see a true miracle over nature. Okay, We've seen him heal the sick. Uh, we, we've seen him cast out demons. Now, for the first time, uh, he brings up his control over nature, in particular, the wind and the waves. I've entitled our study this morning, Faith Doesn't Panic. Faith Doesn't Panic. Mark 4, 35 through 41. And what this is, is it's an installment, it's an upgrade to your storm theology. We all face storms in life. I think we can go there. And this is, a, this is an upgrade to that to help you keep your eyes uh, on Christ and to have an in, increased amount of faith when it comes to handling life's storms. All right? Check it out. Let's look at it. Verse 35 to 41. Let's read this miracle. And it's, it's a special text. I've really uh, enjoyed its study this week. And I hope to bring uh, justice to it in my teaching this morning. Verse 35. On that day... I'll talk about that in a moment. This is one long day. We've been in that day for about a month and a half. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, 
Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. It was a regatta of boats. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much so that the boat was already filling up. Well, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, they shook him awake, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up immediately. That's the force of the text. He rose to his feet immediately. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, or be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And then he turned and said to them, why are you afraid? Why are you panicking? How is it that you have no faith? Well, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? Faith doesn't panic. The the disciples were struck with fear. They were terrified, the text literally says. They were terrified for their lives because of a fierce storm. Until at the end of the story and account, they realized that God was in the boat. They were focused in their panic outside the boat until they realized who Jesus was. They were panicking. They had misplaced Fear. They should have been fearing Jesus all along, but they got their eyes on the storm, the fierce gale wind, the squall that was about to capsize their boat. Their fear was on the wrong thing. It was inordinate fear, and it's inordinate fear that causes us to panic. Faith doesn't panic. Fear panics. That's an outcome of true fear in your heart. They should have known better, to be honest. Now, they... They had seen Jesus cast out demons. They had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him forgive sins. They had seen him confound, which we just saw in Mark 4. They had, he had confounded the religious elite. And once again, they have forgotten who he is. He's in the boat. There is no reason for them to fear. There is no reason for them to panic, but they find themselves often like we find ourselves in doubt, in concern, in panic. And Jesus links the two together and says there's lack of faith. They lack faith. Here's the irony. Four of the 12 in the boat were serious fishermen. We've already met them in Mark chapter 1, remember? He was walking along the beach and they were fishermen. They were good at it. They were in the family business. So these are salty, seasoned fishermen who are panicked about a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it is actually a, a freshwater lake. And in essence, what happens here is they lose their awe of being with Jesus. They forget, they get earthy. We have to confess too that we lose our awe at times with who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I desperately need, even this morning, I desperately need um, to be gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. 
I'm far too earthly and earthy. I frequently lose my, my wonder and get my eyes off Christ. I, I frequently fail at, at faith, right? If we're brutally honest, we have to confess that even though we can't believe they've done this and they're absolutely panic-stricken, we find ourselves in the same boat often. You see, folks, we are hardwired for awe. We are hardwired for awe. And if you attempt to fill your life with horizontal awe, being enamored and awe-stricken by things, rather than vertical awe of who Christ is, you will lack faith. I regularly, like you, take my eyes off Jesus, the awe-inspiring Savior. This text is to give us an installment on storm theology. It's to put the awe where it ought to be on Jesus Christ. But we confess, even though we look at the disciples and think, what are they doing? These salty mariners are scared of a storm on the sea? Come on, right? But when we do that, we realize we bring judgment upon ourselves. And I have to confess, like you do this morning, guilty as charged. When I fear what man can do to me, when I fear what nature can do to me, it's because I've not filled my heart with faith. I don't have the trust I ought to have. I've lost my awe of Jesus' sovereign care of my life. And fear is the byproduct of that. It takes up residence in our hearts. It enters our hearts and controls us. Paul, fast forward to the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.7 states this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but instead of power, of love, and sound judgment. Faith doesn't panic. Faith trusts an unknown outcome to a known Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to get and grow in our faith. It's a part of storm theology and handling life's challenges, life's hard gifts to us. So Jesus, in this account, is the stiller of the storms, as we shall see. There is no storm that is a match for Jesus. You have to see that. Let me give you a little bit of context here to remind you where we're at. And, and this is one of those accounts, I, I call it profound uh, stories for adults. Uh, this is, you know, oftentimes we hear kids' stories and we talk about kids' stories and we repeat kids' stories. This is one for grown-ups. Like, leaders don't panic. Uh, th this is a serious account for serious Christians who struggle with fear and need to have that replaced with true, authentic confidence and awe in who Jesus Christ is. So the text is the beginning of four miracles, which begins here in 435 and goes through 6-6. There are four miracles that will follow as we progress through the month of May and into June. There are four particular miracles. Now, Jesus, as you know, previously in chapter 4, has taught through parables. And he's trying to teach them what is the kingdom of God like. That's what we just left last week. Here, in 435 through 6-6, he teaches through miracles, and he demonstrates what the kingdom of God looks like. 
This is what it looks like. It's a demonstration of the kingdom. By performing these miracles, they are installments into the life of faith. They are to enhance and to deepen and to strengthen our confidence in God. And so there are four miracles coming up. This is the first one, the calming of the sea. And it's a reminder that he is sovereign over the sea, over the wind, over demons you're about to see, over death in chapter 5. You're about to see his sovereign control in such a way and in such a picture that it ought to strengthen you. It ought to fortify your faith and give you confidence. It's going to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like. It's designed, it's intentionally written and crafted by Mark to help us make an intentional choice between faith and fear. That is a regular choice you have to make as a believer. Will I live by faith or will I walk by faith or will I walk in fear? Something we all have to wrestle with. Mark says, sola fide, faith alone. That is the choice we should make. Now, Let's begin. A little more context, a couple more pieces of material here. The text says there in verse 35, on that day when evening came. It's the end of a long day. That long day began, look at your text, back in chapter 3, verse 20. So everything from 320 forward to now is a single day. It's, a, it's recorded as one day in the life of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of some things about that day. You've been going through it for, for a better part of a month in our, in our study together. But you remember there are intense crowds, frenetic activity going on. His family, I thought he was crazy. So they came up from Nazareth to pull him out, right? And to take him home and to talk him off the ledge because they said he was crazy. Then after he deals with that matter, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious elite, accuse him of being demon-possessed. That he's doing what he does, these miracles, by the spirit of Satan, rather than the spirit of God. Right? And then, he's been teaching them parables. So all day long, he's pushed off about lunch. He pushed off from the shore that afternoon. And he began in the Bay of Parables, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Right? That's what he's been doing. It's a long day. It's taken us a better part of a month to cover one day in Jesus' life. Well, it's clear from the text he's exhausted. It's a reminder of Jesus' humanity. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And if you start in early morning and go to evening with that kind of tumultuous activity and teaching you're going to be exhausted, right? That's just part of it. So he needs a respite. He, he needs some time away from the crowds. He needs some time away from all the activity. So verse 35 says, look at it. On that day, when it got to be evening, he said to them, can we get a break? Let's go to the other side. A clear reminder baked into the text from Mark that he is a man. He had hunger pains like you had hunger pains, have hunger pains. He gets tired like you get tired. He's exhausted, right? And then what proceeds afterward 
afterwards are two rebukes. Two rebukes. It, they are two rebukes we all need to hear, to be honest. He's going to rebuke the wind, and he's going to rebuke the disciples. These rebukes continue on, though. Uh, you see them again in, in, in chapter 7, verse um, 18. He begins to ask them questions, and he said to him, Are you so lacking in faith? Do you not understand whatever goes into the man from outside can defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. 8.17, we see him rebuking. And Jesus is aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss this fact that you have no bread? Do not let, do, do you not let, do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hard heart? He says it again in 21, again in verse 32 of chapter 8, 9.19. So rebuke from here forward in Mark's gospel is just part of the equation. So some of the force that I'm going to come at you with in the next couple of months will have a little bit of flavor that direction because it's the text. Jesus is rebuking his closest disciples, and in essence, it's a rebuke to us. And the rebuke is this, are you not going to walk by faith? Every time something difficult happens to you, why does it disorient you spiritually? Why do you go into despair? Trust the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust the Lord. With all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. I'm just being honest. We all need a rebuke from time to time. A rebuke in shorthand is a swift kick in the pants. All of us from time to time. If we're brutally honest. Need a good rebuke. It's what prophets do. It's what teachers do. Right? I love Vance Havner. I was reading a biography which quoted Vance Havner this week. Um, on uh, Monday morning when I got up early and I was in someone else's library and I pulled the book off a shelf. And in that book, there was a little quote about Vance Haver. And he says, as pastors and prophets, we are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> That's a good job description for what, what we have to do sometimes. We comfort the afflicted and then we afflict those who get comfortable. Well, these kinds of texts here... In, here in, in Mark 4, 35 to 41, kind of afflict the comfortable. They call us out regarding our faith. So there are two rebukes in this passage. We're going to frame up our discussion around those two rebukes. So rebuke number one is this. Jesus rebukes nature. He rebukes a fierce, unrelenting, life-threatening storm. And that matters. Jesus is going to rebuke a storm in verses 35 to 39. Now, the intense details that Mark talks about is because Peter is an eyewitness. He felt this personally. He was, he was there. It was vivid to him. Unlike uh, Matthew's gospel, unlike Luke's. I mean, literally, you can feel the text. We are perishing. And there's things in the text that aren't in the other text, like he's on a pillow. And, and, and talking about going to the other side. And just, there's all these, these, these principles. So as you know, Jesus has been teaching in the Bay of Parables. It's getting late. And so he simply says, let's get out of here. I need a break. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And so they are going to row across the Sea of Galilee, row slash sail, across the Sea of Galilee. From the western shore of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Just to give you a marker, 
That's about five miles, approximately five miles. So it's pretty serious. And we see from 36 that there's a regatta of boats. It's not just the boat that Jesus is in. There's a group of boats leaving the crowd. They took him along with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. When it says just as he was, it's a reference to they never went back to shore. He's out teaching. Remember, he pushed off shore about 10 feet, and he's teaching to everybody on the hillside. He, they didn't go back to shore. They didn't grab their stuff. They just hightailed it out of there. Because if he went back and re-engaged the crowds, he, he would get no rest. So he says, let's get out of here. Let's go from west to east across the Sea of Galilee. The boat. Let's talk about the boat a little bit. This boat is not a dinghy. Um, it's not a little trolling boat or a little fishing boat. It's 27 feet long. Huge high walls. So gun, gun walls on this thing would have been about five feet tall. It's made out of wood. It had four rowing spots and a sail. How do we know all this? So you weren't there, Dan. How do you know all this? Well, because in 1986, um, they were doing a dig and they discovered a boat. And the carbon-14 dating placed it between 120 B.C. and 40 A.D. I'm sure it wasn't the boat. It was a similar boat. And when they unearthed it and they looked at it in the mud, they saw what kind of boat it was. So this is how we know what we're dealing with. So it's about a 27-foot rowboat with a sail. And this is the boat they're in. And there are multiple of those boats. It's a regatta. Um, he's already in the boat. He probably said goodbye, and they started rowing out of the Bay of Parables. And they're just going along fine. Until the text says, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, a crazy storm. There arose a life-threatening squall, a violent storm just popped up on the Sea of Galilee. And this word fierce is an interesting word. It's the word for, it's megalon. We get our word mega. It was a mega storm. It was mega wind. It was a category five gale type of wind. Three times though, I want you to note this. Three times in this passage, he uses the word mega. It was mega storm. It got mega calm and they were mega afraid. Mark is writing this very clearly. Because he wants you to understand the way faith works is to focus on mega Jesus. That's what he's trying to get to. But he wants you to see that this is a serious situation. This is a serious storm that takes place here. And so he uses this word for enormous. It's a mega. It's an enormous storm. Tornadic like wind. The boat is, verse 37, taking on water. Remember, those gun walls are about five feet tall of the boat. So the waves were probably 10 to 12 feet high. It's so violent that the swells were 10 to 12 feet high. And they're just bobbing and weaving. And go out and look at the art because the art really captures this um, from, from Rembrandt. And go out and Google this and, and you'll really appreciate um, this particular scene that he, 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 he drew. Now, when the text says that these seasoned sailors are afraid, I'm here to tell you, it had to be a big old storm. It had to be a mega storm. That's saying something. When grown 
experienced, salty sailors are afraid of a storm on the sea, this is a big deal. Uh, they, they thought they were going to die. That's exactly what Matthew says, and that's exactly what Luke says. They thought they were going to die. The way he says it here, he says, you don't care, we're perishing. I mean, this is the big one. They're going down. This is the perfect storm on the Sea of Galilee here, and Jesus is in the boat. Now, a little bit of a note about the storms. This was not entirely unusual that they would have these kind of violent nighttime pop-up storms on the Sea of Galilee. There's geographical reasons for this. One interesting thing is the Sea of Galilee is the lowest um, sea level lake in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level. And then ascending up its hills, it's kind of a perfect uh, funnel. Up the hills there's mountains and ridges and it creates this funnel effect, right? And so when a storm pops up, it funnels it through the lake and then brings down these pop-up squalling kind of storms. So it, this wasn't the first time this ever happened on the Sea of Galilee, but this was a big one, a, a mega one. It was like the perfect storm, like the Andrea Gale movie, the perfect storm. This was the big one that, that was going to take them out. And so these gigantic funnel effects would cause fierce wind and seismic swells and seismic waves there. Suffice it to say, it was an unpredictable mega storm that they found themselves in a 27-foot wooden boat. Look at the disciples' reaction, though. They said the, the boat is filling up, the boat is sinking. Seasoned fishermen on the lake, that lake. They fished that lake. They knew that lake. They should have known better, but they thought this is the the big one. They became afraid. They began to fear for their lives. And that fear then expressed itself in anger at Jesus. The force of the language is he's back sleeping on the back of the boat and they go over and literally shake him awake. What are you doing? Are you indifferent? They accuse him of indifference. In essence, they rebuke him for indifference. How could you be sleeping in a time like this? That's the question they have. Oh, the irony. You remember these same guys. About a year and a half from this account. In Jesus' hour of need. What does he say when he finds him in the garden? Can you not tarry one hour? They're sound asleep in Jesus' greatest hour of need. What irony. Here they are saying, you are indifferent. You don't care about us. The storm's about to take our lives, and they are absolutely frustrated. They're angry, and they shake him awake and say, why are you so indifferent? We're perishing, and you don't even care. You're sound asleep. What's interesting here, we can't correlate it, but it sure sounds a lot like Jonah, doesn't it? If you know anything about Jonah chapter 1, right? He's down in the belly of the ship asleep. They're in a big storm, and they're trying to figure out the cause of the storm. Jesus is in a deep sleep. How do you know? They had to startle him awake. He was in REM for sure. Right? He is, he's out. Not only is he out, but the water is taken on in the boat. So he's on the back of the boat. Surely he was soaking wet. So the picture in the Rembrandt, you'll see him. He's soaking wet. He's on the back of the boat there. And they say he takes the, the coxswain's pillow or his seat. 
And he's literally made a pillow. He's on the back of the boat and he's sound asleep. Water's lapping over him. He's soaking wet. He's so exhausted, the storm doesn't even phase him. He's out. Another reference to his humanity in the text that Mark writes in. Oh, he's 100% God, folks, but he's also 100% man. He's crashed. They're frantic. They're panicking. They've got their eyes on this storm. He was in complete trust to the sovereign God. He was God. But a part of the Trinity, he was sleeping like a baby. He knew God was going to take care of him. They shake him awake. They selfishly accuse him of being heartless. And it's so fascinating because as you feel this text and as you read it over and over again, you realize it's the creatures rebuking the creator. Why don't you take care of us? Verse 39, look at it. He stood up. And there it is. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm, mega calm. He spoke. He spoke to nature. He used words. He said, shush, stop. He talked to the wind. He said, hush, be still. It means, hush means to muzzle. It means cease. And he says, be still and stay still. It's in the tense of the verb, indefinitely. Hush, stop. And it wasn't like it took an hour and a half for the storm clouds to blow away and it to clear up. It was instant. So that's what you don't want to think, that it just kind of went away and it's kind of a sort of natural miracle that he did, but sort of not. It was just like normal clouds blowing out of the air. Oh, no. When he spoke and he said, hush, he said, shut up, <coughs> boom, everything went calm. And again, Mark writes it in such a way it got perfectly calm. It's the same word, megalos, mega calm. It went from mega wind and mega waves to mega calm just like that. He muzzled the wind. He stopped the waves. And immediately, you know what this is like when a storm passes by. It's eerily calm. It was eerie. It was so much silence and stillness. Mega calm. Folks, this is undeniably a miracle. It happened instantly. He demonstrated his unlimited power over nature. It's a reminder of his sovereign care and sovereign power. That every molecule is under his sovereign care. There are no rogue molecules in this universe. All are under Christ's sovereign care. They quickly realize that nature obeys his voice. And this is why they turn so quickly. They were so focused on the storm outside of the boat when they should have been focused of the God in the boat. They'd got their eyes. They're awestruck horizontally. They're not thinking vertically. They're not thinking of Christ's care. And they conclude Jesus did what? He just caught the sea. They conclude rightfully that only God can do that. This was unsettling. To say the least, right? Jesus is the strong man. In this same day, he's brought up the strong man. Remember the strong man back in the parables there? He said the strong man, if you're going to go in and rob a strong man's house, you've got to go in and first bind the strong man. He is the strong man. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. He is sovereign over nature. And that's what he's doing here in these four miracles. Nature, illness, demons, and death. He's going to raise someone from the dead. 
in the next month here. In Mark 4, 35 through 6, 6. And so he rebukes the storm. That's the first rebuke. And you need to take note of that, that God is sovereignly in control of nature. He's sovereignly in control of nature. He's sovereignly in control of your life. You can trust him. You may not see it. You may not understand it. But I'm here to remind you, based upon the sacred scriptures, you can trust Christ. Don't be fearful of what's going on outside of you when you have a personal and intimate relationship to Christ. Second rebuke. Second rebuke. Jesus rebukes his faithless disciples here in Mark 4, 40 and 41. He asked a question. Look at it. And he said to them, he turns around on the boat. Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? He asked the question, why are you chicken? Why are you panicking? Faith doesn't panic. Why are you guys panicking? You're, you're sailors on the sea. That's just crazy. It's like a jockey being afraid of a horse, right? Or a trucker being afraid of a truck. It doesn't make any sense. A farmer being afraid of grass. It, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what, what is happening? He's saying, why are you afraid? These things happen all the time. He then connects, and here's the connection. He connects their fear with their lack of faith. It's a double question. What are you afraid of, and where in the world is your faith? It's the question that we all have to answer every single day of our lives. What are you afraid of, and where is your faith? He cannot believe the level of hysteria and fear. These are high-capacity leaders. They, they have demonstrated their fearless leadership. He's a bit shocked. He's a bit taken back. At their challenging and rebuking him for his indifference. Like us, they were slow to trust. Two plus two equaled eight. It didn't equal four for them. They couldn't connect the dots. They, they couldn't do the math. They were slow to conquer their doubts. And it's easy to criticize them. And you're tempted to because I did this week. I'm like, what in the world? These guys, what are they doing? And then I'm reminded of my own failure. My own my own doubts, right? They had first-hand knowledge. They had been traveling with him since his Galilean ministry started. They'd seen people here, demons cast out of people. This should have just been, hey, Jesus is on the boat. We're fine. Just keep rowing. But no, it wasn't. They had serious doubts. They had trust issues. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17... He is 100% man, you're right, but he's also 100% God. He is the, God is the sustainer of all things. Christ is the sustainer. Listen to Colossians 1, 13 to 17. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by all things were created, both the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He's the glue of the universe. 
They feared the storm outside the boat, and they had God inside the boat. They had no reason to fear. He's calling them out. It's a swift kick in the pants. He's rebuking these faithless disciples. And this, is a, this is a miracle only God could do. And they're co-equal. It's a mega storm. It would take a mega savior. But he is the one that cares for you. He, he knows the hairs that are numbered on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows where your mailbox is. He, he knows all your movements. Psalm 139. He knows everything. And verse 40 says they're absolutely terrified. Jesus is simply saying, you should have been more terrified of God who was in the boat than a storm that's outside the boat. This is a teaching moment. This is a rebuke, right? They should have been awestruck with Jesus' presence. And he was the perfect example. What was he doing? Napping on a pillow on the back of a boat during a life-threatening storm. It is the perfect picture of how we go through storms and how we, how we have faith in Christ, no matter what happens to us. He just told them, the kingdom of God is like this. They go out on a boat, it goes down, and they go, where's the king? He's in the boat. There's no reason to doubt. If he can save you, he will sustain you. He who began a good work in you will perfect it and perform it until the day of Christ. You have every confidence to sit here this morning and say, I can put my entire life in the hands of Christ. Not just my eternal life, my whole life. The presence of Jesus should have exceeded the fierceness of that storm. They should have been awestruck with Christ. They should have been reflecting on all that he had done, and he did. They weren't. They accused Jesus of abandoning them. And so he turns the table, and he accuses them of having no faith. They didn't trust Jesus. They were horizontally in awe with the storm. They were vertically misplaced and out of alignment in vertical awe. And when you're out of whack here vertically, it will affect you horizontally in this life. And you will think and do foolish things when your faith is not resting in Christ. He's forcing them and he's forcing us to choose between faith or fear. That's the choice you make every single day when you get up. And you start your day tomorrow. You're going to make a choice. Am I going to walk by faith? Or am I going to walk by sight? Am I going to have horizontal awe with what's going on around me? And let circumstance control me? Or I am going to be so in tune with my Savior. And have such vertical awe-inspiring focus. That I cannot be dislodged. And dissuaded away from Christ. They should have had mega faith at this point. It's bewildering, isn't it? I mean, these miracles are here to, to build our faith, to strengthen our faith. They were in despair. And we find ourselves from time to time in despair. So how do they respond to Jesus' questions? He asks a double question. Why in the world are you chicken? And why don't you have faith? How do they respond? 41, look at it. And they became very much afraid. Mega fear, there it is, the third time. 
They should have responded in joy. You almost anticipate them to go, yeah, oh man, I blew it. I got my eyes off Jesus. I'm going to respond in joy. I've been, I now see. I was blind, but now I see. They should have responded in joy to his divine power and to his comfort and his stilling of the storm, right? No, look at the text. He calms the storm, makes it eerily calm, eerily quiet, spins around, asks them two questions, and their response is they became very much afraid. Boy, they had trust issues. Boy, they lacked confidence. They weren't dependent. Song comes to mind that we all probably sang when we were growing up in the church. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When you're full of faith, doubt gets vanquished. Here it is. They're right back at it. They're right back struggling with their faith. And so they became mega afraid. You're like... Ay, ay, ay. But then when you do that, you're reminded that we too are, we too walk in their sandals. We, we do the same kinds of things. We have our own set of doubts. And then the second way they responded, and we'll conclude with this, they ask, who is this? Who's in this boat? Look at it. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Can I tell you that is probably the signature most important question you have to answer today and every day of your life. It's the most important question in this life. It's of mega importance to answer this question. It's the question we all have to answer. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Well, I'm here to remind you that he is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And every atom and molecule is under his sovereign control. The wind, he demonstrates it. Death, he's over it. Sickness, he's over it. Demons, he's over it. Everything is under his sovereign care as both creator and sustainer of the universe, right? 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, listen. It says, when Jesus will bring about the in the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign and King of kings and Lord of hosts, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see, has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Doxology should have come out of their mouth. They had a question. Who is this? You're kidding me. Questioning? You've been with him for a year and a half. You've seen what he's done. No man could do that. No, they even accused him of being God because he said, I forgive sins. And they said, only God can forgive sins. And they bring that as a form of rebuke. And they conclude, rightfully so, even the wind and the waves instantaneously obey him. Folks, he's the savior of the world. And here's the good news. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants an intimate relationship with you. He's mega Jesus. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our, our affection. And that's the question every single one of us has to answer. What are we going to do with this Jesus who's in the boat, who controls the waves and the wind? Right? I think Mark's calling us out. I think he's just simply saying, are you going to walk by faith or are you going to walk by sight? 
And I'm telling you, if you're full of faith, faith never panics. It trusts, even though you don't know the future, even though you don't know the next move, you've got to trust Christ. I think sometimes when we greet each other, maybe it should be a little different in the church. You know, we, we ask each other, and it's, it's appropriate and, and responsible. You know, how you doing? Really? I mean, circumstances can be pretty bad. Maybe we should be asking, how are you doing with your faith? How are you faithing? Let's make it a verb. How are you faithing in the Christian life? Because that's the question that's before us. It's not that there's no storms. This is storm theology. It's not that there's no storms. There will be storms, right? You're either going in a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. You are going to be in storms in this life. That is a fact. Just like these men were in this boat in a physical storm. I think it was an aha moment for them. They're like, who in the world is in the boat? And it should be an aha moment for us. And it's a reminder that no storm is a match for Jesus. No storm. Bit of homework. I want you to do something. I want you to go out and uh, look at Hebrews 11 this week. Over a meal with your wife or with your children. Look at the hall of faith. Appreciate the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. You're called to live by faith, not by sight. Just a recap and we'll close. Our storm theology. Jesus said he'll lead you through the storm. Right? He'll lead you through the storm. Hebrews chapter 11 is where you do your homework. James, which follows Hebrew 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He'll see you through the storm. Second, God in the boat is better than a storm outside the boat. Constantly remind yourself of this story, folks. Third, storms are a part of spiritual growth. You, you, really, can't, uh, you really can't effectively grow without storms. You need storms. I need storms. So remember, this is Peter's account. Peter's in this boat. He's having Mark write it. But later in his life, he writes this in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. This is the guy who's shaking Jesus awake in the back of the boat saying, Do you, are you that indifferent? You, you, you don't even care we're going to perish? Later writes, hey, it's strange when you go through some fiery storm. See how that correlates to other, as he grows and as he becomes more like Christ and as he sanctifies his life, you see him later writing in scripture that we shouldn't think it's strange. <clears throat> Lastly, Jesus knows every squall on the lake, every hair in your head, every need that you have, whether spoken or unspoken, true or false, he knows them all. And you just have to have utter confidence in him. To me, this parable is like a swift kick in the pants. Because fleshly speaking, I think when storms come, we default to fear. What is going to happen next? And Jesus basically looks at his disciples and says, listen, don't be 
Have faith. Trust. Dependent. Confidence in who Christ is. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter how bad the storm is outside the boat if you've got Jesus inside the boat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. This account, as we have studied, has been pictured, written about, drawn by famous artists. It is so significant. It is so rich, yet so simple. Are we going to choose to walk by faith or choose to walk by sight? Honestly, the, the men in this boat should not have panicked. They knew better. But they didn't. The mega storm came. And then they got mega afraid. Even at the end. And then they questioned, who is this? They're slowly getting it. And we confess this morning that we are slow likewise. I only wish I could understand this clear and see clear and respond better. So we confess sometimes our lack of faith and our inadequacy. I pray that every time we doubt, I pray that our doubt would be vanquished by this text. Mark 4, 35 to 41. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.